I'm speaking to you this morning from uh, Redmond, Washington, which, as you may know, is sort of the international headquarters of Microsoft. I live about 10 miles from the Microsoft main campus. All of my neighbors are Microsoft engineers or retired Microsoft engineers. So uh, we all own little white dogs and we walk them six times a day and that's our one and only way of meeting each other. Uh, I've been married to my wife Janet for 44 years. Uh, she's co-pastored with me around the country. Uh, she now writes books for women from our home here in Redmond and publishes those on Amazon. Uh, and we have, as the law requires, a little white dog named Willie who is half Havanese and about half Terrier. And he is uh, uh, shortening my lifespan every day as we work through his constant, incessant demands in his high maintenance brain, which is the world that, that makes sense to him. So um, really so glad to make this connection. The situation we're in right now is really difficult in a lot of ways, but one of the positives is we're meeting people we never would have met before. And, and here we are together as part of the body of Christ, universal. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that and for the opportunity to share with you uh, a little bit today. We're going to look at another one of uh, <clears throat> Paul's greatest hits uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in, in my setting, when I say hits, I don't mean hits like uh, a Bruno Mars song or something you hear on the radio. It's like, oh, that's great. I mean hits like a brick through a plate glass window, <laughs> that kind of hit. This is a high velocity armor piercing piece of scripture. It, it just hits me hard in the heart every time I read it. And for me, the reason for that is because I've had to walk it out. I've had to, to live it. And uh, it explains to me so much of my own life. And if you have a, the ability to have a perspective on your life that is life-giving, it's such a benefit to being able to walk with God and just being able to go to the grocery store and come home still sane. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. So uh, my companion today is this lovely white mug of French press coffee, which I made not long ago. Uh, Jeff and I are coffee uh, creatures, so to speak, and we share technologies for coffee and so forth back and forth. And in my quest for more coffee, uh, one day on the road, I found myself in a Panera Bread, uh, where perhaps it's not the Mount Olympus of coffee, but they, they, they do have it. And so I, I sit down and begin to work on my laptop, and I've done probably most of my professional work in my life at the Great Coffee Houses of America. This is another one of them. So I'm pounding away on the keyboard, and a, a woman sits down in the booth just next to mine, and pulls out uh, a computer uh, case, removes a laptop from it, carefully sets it down on the top of the table in Panera, reminding me of those YouTube videos where they show the unboxing of my new computer. Have you ever seen those? They're completely a waste of your time, but people love these machines so much that they, they video them and, and put it on and they're kind of engrossing. And so she's obviously doing this. She's handling it like, I don't know, a box of nitroglycerin or a bar of gold or something that's great value. You know, she opens it up slowly and plugs the power cord in the back and puts it in just the right position to be used. And then she takes the business end of the power cord, the two prongs, and turns to the person who's in the booth next to her and says, if I plug this in, does that connect me to the internet? 
and I, you know, all of us are stifling laughter. And, and I thought, this is exactly where everybody lives today. Uh, we all know that there's power out there. The question is how to connect to it. Now, she was unaware that the internet and electricity are two completely different things. But she knew the power was important in her life to do what she needed to do, which in that case was just some work on this new laptop. But it's the sense that every human has, because we're wired to be spiritual creatures, to look for the plug in the wall. Where do I connect to what I can tell in my heart is out there, but I just I haven't reached yet. Now, the Apostle Paul, who is probably the most famous of the early Christian preachers, knows about this issue, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes a letter to the believers in the Greek city of Corinth that speaks, along with many other things, to this particular issue. And what he addresses in the letter, in the section of Scripture we'll look at today, is the two primary ways that people try to plug into the power. And in my personal history, which I'm going to weave into this talk, uh, I have attempted both ways extensively. <laughs> and he's pointing us uh, to this journey that we're all going to go through and giving us some suggestions about where it goes and then a possible alternative uh, as we seek to plug into the power. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 21 through 25. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And here's the passage we're going to key in on today. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Keep in mind in the Paul's world, there are two types of people, people who are Jews and people who aren't. And so when he says Greeks, he means everybody else, the entire Gentile world. Jews demand sign and signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, as this brick comes through this particular plate glass window, what I'm hearing from these words is that there are two primary ways that we look to plug into spiritual power, what our heart cries out for, the, the connection to something that's bigger than me, more than just looking at a sunset, but something that has tangible for real power that can have a transformative effect. The first one of those ways that uh, people use is to follow what he says in verse 22, for Jews demand signs. Demand. There's a, such a thing as a religion of demands, a religion of rules, a religion of protocols, a religion of, of policies, and an attempt to create a parallel universe, if you will, through the application of these rules and rituals uh, in a, a very, very stringent way. And so this is a religion, if they had a liturgy, it would be you shoulda, you oughta, you gotta. You shoulda, you oughta, you gotta. You shoulda, you oughta, you gotta. That the only way that you know that you're right with God is if you're following the proper rule book and doing it with all your heart. Now, the goal here of a religion of demands is to melt me down and mold me into something that looks like the rule book. Not a disciple, a clone. And you can, you can discern people who walk in this demand religion because there's a sameness to them. 
uh, when, you know, when things are healthy, everybody's different. When things are unhealthy, everybody feels kind of the same. And if you don't fit into the sameness of their little box, uh, the shoulda, oughta, gotta people are going to come down on you hard because you're outside of the way to plug into the real power using the wrong plug or the wrong wire. The wrong, there's always something wrong because the demands and meeting them are what everything is all about. Now, Jesus was not a fan of this sort of religion at all, although a lot of people who follow him tend to think that, that he was. The people who were the highest expression of this religion, he criticized deeply one day in Matthew 23, verse 27. He said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. In other words, the more rules you have, the more hypocrisy you're going to have because night follows day and that follows the other. You're like the whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. So what's he saying? He's saying demands produce compliance, but they don't produce transformation. You can get me to sign on the dotted line, but you can't get me through doing that to stop. What example should we use? Screaming at my wife, kicking my dog, stealing money at work, looking at things on the internet that I shouldn't be looking at, despite the fact that I've signed the form that everybody says will bring me to a state of true holiness. Now, I grew up in an environment like this. I, I was raised uh, on the East Coast in a liturgical suburban environment, which was extremely sterile. In other words, uh, you came into this place we called a church that looked like Dracula's castle to me as a kid. It was all made of black stones and, and, and big curved windows and so forth. And once we forced you to come to the holy place, then we would sing together out of the holy book. And we would use the same book every week from the same pages and walk through the same service. Now, Nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, it's a lovely way to come into a worship experience with God. What becomes not so lovely is if these forms, these demands become an end in themselves rather than just a means for us to express our worship. In our particular group, we were into the ends. Uh, we did the same three songs. We said the same words back. Uh, we sang that we were worms and terrible and and awful. Uh, my father, who was our pastor, would do 13-minute homilies that I couldn't even begin to understand. We would sing another song about what a bunch of worms we were, and then uh, ha having repeated this, uh, we knew this was God's eternal plan for our church because we were going to do it again the next day for eternity, and the next Sunday, and the next Sunday, and the next Sunday, and the next Sunday. And as long as we rose to these demands, uh, then we were plugged into the wall. And as a young person, I'm wondering, why isn't being plugged into the wall better than this? I mean, like, is, this is it. Uh, we, we get to do the songs and wait six days and, and, and do them again. And, and, and again, this, if this is not about a critique of anybody's format at all. I, I could care less how you do your Sunday morning. What matters is, does it come from the heart? And does it touch the heart of God? And in our case, we were so much into going through the motions that we felt justified in the doing. We were whitewashing our tombs. The problem was, I knew too much. 
Uh, as a kid, uh, I guess you could say my mother and father shared too frankly about what they did professionally. <laughs> and I knew, I knew what was going on in the church behind the scenes. They would say these things at the uh, the dinner table about who was cheating on whose wife and uh, who had their thumb on the scale when they were measuring out products to customers and and who was lying and and who was uh, embezzling and uh, I'm I'm sitting here you know eight years old listening to felonies at at the dinner table and the conclusion I reach from their report and from my own observation is these people aren't any different from anyone out in the world. The only difference is they come on every Sunday morning because they have to, and they sing from the same red book because they have to, and they say all these words, they mouth them because they have to, because it's demanded of them, and they go out feeling justified because they checked the box. And I started wondering, is this what Jesus died for? To give us a bigger box to check? to give us a, a, a set of demands we have to meet. And then once we meet them, we've sort of, what would we say? We've completed the work of the cross uh, and without me meeting the demands, what he's done, that there's just no power in us. I was so confused by this. And I have to be honest, I was totally alienated. Now keep in mind, I'm very young. It's the 60s, alienation is the religion of my generation. And all of that was quite natural to us. But what I saw said to me, this demand religion produces these artificial styrofoam clones who spiritually speaking can't get out of their own way. And in their way, there is no power. You are not plugged in because they are not different. But I had a second kind of spiritual experience too uh, in another state uh, out East. Uh, there's a religion of demands, but there's also a religion of experiences. The Greeks, they're seeking wisdom. They want to know and feel and, and, and uh, be engaged in, in a different way with this thing called faith. They have a whole different definition of where the plug is and how you, how you plug into it. And so just as the demand people tried to create a parallel universe kind of built out of rules that I could follow. The wisdom people try to create their own universe based out of experiences and revelations. Uh, and as a result of that, their goal, not to melt me down to look like the rules, but to melt me down and pour me into a mold that looks like me, that puts me in charge of my own spirituality, that lets me be my own personal uh, guru, the priest of my own personal approach uh, to what a relationship uh, with God should be like, a, a personal spirituality, like the woman at the booth next to me in Panera had a personal computer. So the Greeks, they're always looking for the next experience. Remember when they came to Jesus and wanted to see him and talk to him? I suspect that was part of a grand tour of you know, shamans and priests and prophets around, around the region. And their tour guide so, said, well, look out the window to your right. There's where Jesus lives. You know? so they, they jumped off the bus and said, well, he's next. Let's, let's go see this guy. Maybe he can, I don't know, turn a frog blue or do some parlor trick that will impress us and tell us, well, this really is the, this is the power of God uh, right here. This was their cultural uh, habit. Uh, Paul talked about them in his second letter to Timothy with these words, 
always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It's the learning itself that is their spirituality and not any real uh, plugging in uh, to the power. Now, as a little older boy, maybe junior high school, uh, my parents uh, were related to people who lived in the coal fields of Maryland. And these folks did their spirituality. They tried to plug in their laptop in a way that I had never seen before. And so we would visit their church on holidays like the 4th of July when my dad wasn't speaking on Sundays. And we would walk in and find music, which seemed to me to be at an almost rock concert level, even though I didn't even know those terms back then. And here are all my relatives up on the platform, all playing instruments. And uh, my Aunt Dee's playing the piano. And my Uncle Frank is teaching Sunday school. And <clears throat> they're uh, going on and on and on. And uh, they're, they're singing for uh, more than an hour. And during the song service, which is very loud, and which are songs that do not contain the word worm, and which I had never heard before, People are doing odd things like speaking in foreign languages I had never heard. They have their hands raised in the air. Uh, some of them are walking around. Some of them are coming forward to the front and, and kneeling down and, and praying. And there's a lot of crying going on. And there would be intervals of silence where people would blurt out things I could not understand. And then other people would blurt out things I, I could understand. And I'm thinking to myself, They've sent a bus to the local mental institution and brought people in who are kind of like out of control or something. Now, keep in mind, this is my eight-year-old brain trying to process this. And I, I, I am terrified and horrified. I'm really liking there's no rules, right? Because it doesn't seem like anybody's in control of this show. Everybody is just on their own, doing what they feel having these experiences, and, and I find it just absolutely, completely alienating, but in a whole different way. It's like we've gone down to the country here, and my relatives are the Beverly Hillbillies on acid. I mean, what is going on with these people? They're just so crazy, and yet there was something compelling about it because of the freedom that they had and, and the kind of... Um, you know, when you're moved enough to cry, that means something. And, and so I, I saw a lot of that. And then we would go for lunch. And this was at my grandmother's house, although she had passed away long before. And we would all gather around the table and eat. Uh, or we'd go to one of the other relatives' house and do the same thing. And uh, after the fried chicken had been passed out, almost immediately there was another ritual that would follow, which, which is uh, let's gossip about the preacher. And so they would launch into diatribes about the sermons and how they're not this and not that. And didn't he misunderstand this uh, word? And, and wasn't that too short slash long? It just depended on the week what the, what the critique was. And it was quite long and quite pronounced. And then there was the music, don't get me started. And wasn't that played in C and it should have been played in F and on and on and on. And did you know that uh, so-and-so's daughter is sleeping with the bus driver and blah, 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 blah. And I sat there looking around, munching my fried chicken and smelling the gravy and thinking to myself, these folks aren't any better than the people I knew in my other church where we did the pipe organ and the red book and the, the demand of coming and doing the same thing every week. So I conclude as a very young person that I have now explored the entire spiritual world. 
I conclude that there are two ways to try to plug into the power. One way is by following an archaic rule book, and the other way is being like the Greeks, searching after an, another high, another high, another experience, another prophecy, another something. And I, I, I realized that based on that experience in my little 10 or 12 year old mind, it's all a lie. Everybody's pretending. Everybody's just conforming either culturally or legally to the rule book, but no one is actually changed. And from that observation, I draw the conclusion that <clears throat> I can't align myself with either of these groups. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay on battery power for as long as I possibly can. And the way I did that was, uh, if you will, uh, I went out in the middle between the two groups, drew a circle on the ground, so to speak, and stepped into it and called that circle Switzerland. I declared spiritual neutrality, and I assumed a spiritually Swiss passport at that point. And this suited me by personal history. It suited my temperament. It was just, it, it just felt so good to my pre-adolescent heart. And the way it would work was, I'm gonna stand here in between the two sides, in between the demand people and the experienced people, and I am going to make a career out of mocking them both because both are so full of excesses and <laughs> so many problems and, you know, just, just so many warts on them that there would be, I, I would be like a bad stand-up comic, finding reason to condemn everybody for a laugh. And so I simply started down this path and uh, it, it just worked so well because <clears throat> I was going to make a commitment to never making a commitment. I was going to make a, a, a firm stand for absolute neutrality. <laughs> as long as you're neutral, you're never attacked, right? And, and so this just felt so right to my little baby boomer brain. I thought this is, this is the way to go. It makes, it makes me snide and, and funny. Uh, I'll be popular at parties and I'll be throwing rocks at what uh, everybody else is throwing rocks at because you can kind of always get up a following for being against things. It's, it's, it, it's not hard at all. And I will be in the flow of all of that. And I am now a, spiritually speaking, I am a made man. No Panera bread for me. Uh-uh. I'm going to be Swiss all the way. And then Tom showed up. Uh, Tom was uh, my youth pastor. This is back in the days when youth pastors were new. Nobody had them. I, I remember the beginning of youth ministry. I remember the years before it existed. And so my dad had this church full of maturing uh, baby boomers like myself, a, a whole crop of them, and no one really knew what to do with us because we were the kind of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll people. And so he figured they needed somebody to ride herd on this, this demographic. And so he, he brought Tom in and, uh, Tom uh, was like no one else I had ever met. Uh, he had come out of being a motorcycle drug dealer. Uh, he and his friend would uh, ride their bikes up and down the great interstates of, uh, of the Midwest and essentially deal drugs. And it was, it was the whole package, everything you can uh, imagine. And then one day, uh, Jesus found Tom when he was not looking for him 
and so to speak, grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, pulled him off that bicycle and said, you're mine now. And uh, he was not compliant. He was transformed. And I, I, I'll be honest with you, even though I was in the religion business with my family, I had never really met anybody who was transformed, who used to be something else and now was one of, one of these, you know, <laughs> I didn't even know what that meant. He was now someone that he had never met before. And what so impressed me about him was that uh, Tom was able to do religion without demands uh, or a, a, a quest for experiences. He was able to live in a way that was uh, righteous, that was, uh, was uh, really appealing and, and was following what God's mind is for us revealed in the scriptures, but he didn't seem to need a rule book to back up the Bible uh, to, to force. He didn't need to be forced to do that. There was something inside him that was operating, was moving him forward to live in a way that, frankly, I had just never seen before, not among any of the tribes. And, uh, and the other thing about him was uh, he was not circulating like the Greeks looking for the next spiritual high, but he had profound spiritual experiences. He was uh, open to the, the full moving of the Holy Spirit and uh, would, would pray in the Holy Spirit and, and, and lay hands on people for their healing and restoration and was uh, so deeply drawn to praying and fasting and all these things I, I had never seen anywhere else. And, and, and he did this without needing to go to every church in town three times a week to find the next healer, the next guru, the next uh, famous preacher person. It was just a, a relationship he had with Jesus and a desire to deepen that relationship. And when he, you put both of these people together uh, in one person, that's the part I had really never seen. But none of that was really what impressed me. What impressed me was he had a motorcycle. And it's a 16 year old man. <laughs> it's like, dude, you are rocking that bike. I mean, it was like beat up and you know, and it was the same bike he had used as a drug dealer and riding around on this thing. And with that motorcycle, he had this awesome brown leather jacket, which was all weathered in just the right places. And just looked, it was so cool, the coolest jacket ever. And uh, although he was a white guy, he had this massive Afro haircut. I mean, keep in mind, we're talking late 60s here, so this all kind of fit in, but it was like a globe of, of, of black hair on top of his head. And when you put all that together with his story and with his bike and with his jacket, uh, and, and, and I saw him able to, uh, to live the way he lived, I thought, I want to be him. Because what Tom is showing me isn't a religion of, you know, like rules or, hey, chase after this preacher. This is a religion where you lose the drugs, lose the guns, but keep the jacket. It's, it was so wonderful. You know, I, I realized that the, in, in the middle, I'm going to be pushed away, kept away from all of that. But he had stepped into a spiritual experience where rules were, uh, were a burden and, and experiences were enervating and, and draining, but I found something that fills me with life and power and I still have the motorcycle. 
And so I think the question is, we come to this from the outside is when a Paul's greatest hits as the brick through the plate glass window is, do I still have the motorcycle? Do I still have me in all of this? Uh, you know, uh, Jesus transforms us, but he uses us as the raw material. Do I still have the jacket? And do I still have the haircut that says, hey, I'm still me. This is Jesus in me, but it's, it's, it's me. And I, I'm not living out a religion. I'm living out a life. Jesus didn't come to bring us a new faith. He brought us a life. He didn't come to make us better. He came so that we could go from death into that, into that life. And Tom had found that and was living that. And, uh, you know, his witness to me was just to be around me. We just spent time together. And when I got close to that, uh, I realized that, you know, I can't really explain Jesus to you, but I can see him in other people. And Tom opened my eyes uh, to that whole idea that when Jesus comes, that he steps in where we are, changes us, and sends us down that same road as a different person, as a transformed person. And so here's what I had to do. I was sitting in the middle in my circle with my Swiss passport, and all of this is pressed into my heart by sheer hours spent together with my youth pastor. And from that, I, I get a, an idea I'd never had before that the power isn't on either of the sides. It's not from rules and it's not from chasing experiences either. The power is the person of Jesus and he is not with either side. He is above sides. And so I reached the decision that I had to step out of this circle, not because it was wrong, but because it was earthbound, because it was down here on the same level with rules and experiences. It was just my version of the same kind of reasoning. And, and I, I just, so in so many words, I said, Lord, I, I need to come up to you because you are who we want to plug into. You are who we want to relate to. You are the one that doesn't just make us compliant, but transforms us. So I turned in my Swiss passport. If God had an embassy, I guess I walked in and slid it over the counter and said, don't need this anymore. And I, I threw myself into uh, the arms of Christ and found that uh, what was available to my youth pastor is available to everyone. And Paul's brick through the plate glass window is let go of rule conformity, let go of chasing the next book, the next tape, the next video. All we need is in the person of Jesus himself and to plug into him. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so lost without you. And when we find you and connect with you, you have so much more for us than we could ever imagine. We look to you today, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look up to you as our great shepherd. And God, we offer you just our hearts that we could plug into you, that our, our relationship with you would grow in a new and different way, that we would be filled with life and love, and that that'd be so profound that all people would have to do is be around us, and they would see the truth of who you are and what you can do. Thank you for your hand of blessing, protection, health, 
and prosperity on this wonderful group of friends. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I want to make one comment, and then I'm going to ask you some questions, Earl, uh, sure. just to kind of, uh, I think it's fun since we're in this format to be able to do that. Um, but uh, church, I just want to remind you guys, and, and I've said this from the beginning, please do not uh, fall in love or connect with uh, Trilogy. It's not about that. We're one facet of what God is doing. We fall in love with Jesus. And if God calls you to be a part of this church family, awesome. But it can never be about us. It always has to be about him. And that, that as he wrapped up the message, that's the one thing that just rose to the surface in me. And I just wanted to remind all of you, I tell you all the time, um, it's not about our church. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's always about Jesus. Um, so just a few things, Earl, I'm going to make one more comment and then I'll get to the questions. The comment is this, you were talking about Tom and you said, lose the drugs, lose the guns, keep the jacket, keep the motorcycle. I want to remind you that you're talking to a church in Texas. And so we're going to keep the guns too. Okay. I just wanted you to be aware uh, that we're not losing the guns. Okay? We're keeping the guns. Now, maybe the intention of the guns and the application of the guns would change, but we're going to yeah, keep the guns. All right. Yeah. Just don't deal and have guns. Don't, like, don't deal at all. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So that having been said, uh, you mentioned uh, earlier uh, in the message, you talked about this religion of demands or religion of conformity. And, and I think that there's a big, you know, you, you put the emphasis on the church and the style and the patterns that they followed in how they did church in the application of Sunday morning. Um, but I think there's also a danger of that same ritual in our personal approach to God and not just in the context of church. Can you talk a little bit about that heart versus duty, you know, that you made the application of in how do we personally ensure a heart-based approach mm -hmm. to our faith as opposed to our collective faith in the church context? Yeah, that, that's a great point. The church community is not the only source of these pressures. Uh, our personality can be a source of those pressures. Uh, things like perfectionism will do the job just fine, even if I'm an atheist. Uh, and on, on the other end of the scale, if I'm recognizing no authority at all, and I've plunged into a life of all these other things, same idea. You know, I, I think my starting point is, is to ask the question, am I free? Hmm. You know, which is another way of saying, am I still riding my bike? Do I still have the jacket? You know, am I, when I look in the mirror, am I, uh, am, am I still me? Or am I sort of the Christianed up version? Like, am, am I living out myself here? Uh, or is this a kind of, am I playing a role, almost like a little bit of an actor? So I think it begins with me kind of doing a searching inventory of myself and finding out, uh, you know, am I happy? <laughs> Can you ask that? Is that, is, is that legal, you know, to, to ask that? And <clears throat> I, I find myself sometimes wanting to look for a personal formula that will deliver uh, the kinds of things that uh, I feel like I deserve. Yeah. And, and then I have to back off from that and say, you know what you deserve? That. 
Yeah. Jesus didn't come because I deserved it. He came to do things in me like he did in, in Tom, which are kind of by surprise. Uh, yeah. So, and I love the word you use there are, am I free? Uh, because, you know, Paul writes in Galatians five, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You know, yeah. and I think too many of us, we forget that concept of freedom because we move from conformity to conformity. Uh, I think, you know, you talk about conformity to this Christian stereotype or to the expectations that people place on us and all of that. But there's just as much a danger in a pre-Jesus world where we conform to the world around us. And, yeah. you know, uh, and Paul also writes, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so I think that there's this there's this duality to conformity that takes place on both sides of that Jesus encounter, if we're not careful. Yeah. And, and we have to get to that place of being free from just the conformity. That's, that's such a great point. And I ask myself, why does the woman at Panera try to plug into the electrical outlet? Well, because that's the sum total of her previous experience. And she's simply conforming to everything she's ever seen or known uh, around her. And uh, if, if you've had to swim in those waters, that we would call it peer pressure. But the mm. pressures to be a conformist to all of that is, it's probably stronger and greater than it is within uh, the, the church community. Mm. Well, Earl, that, that was, those were the, the big questions that I had that I wanted to ask. And uh, I want you guys to be able to unmute and interact and thank Earl for his time with us and hang out with each other. So please feel free to do that. But Earl, let me just say uh, from all of us here at Trilogy in uh, the 380 corridor of the Dallas suburbs, man, we are so grateful for you having taken your time to be with us today and uh, to Janet uh, for letting you. Uh, but thank you, Earl, for being with us today. It's been a blessing. It's a real pleasure to see you again, Jeff, and to meet this group. I've heard of many times, but this is our, our first sort of face-to-face. -face. I want to thank you guys for uh, rolling the dice on me this morning, <laughs> letting me step into your community. Really enjoyed it.